Welcome to the REIRC Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zubkis. This week, Ashwin Krishnan, the co-head of private credit at Morgan Stanley, speaks with REORC's Katerina Mora about the 2024 outlook for opportunistic credit strategies, deal structures, and how a changing interest rate environment would affect deal flow and shape the market for transactions. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, January 29th. Welcome back to the Rio Primary Review Podcast. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, Ashwin Krishnan. He's the co-head of private credit at Morgan Stanley, where he leads the opportunistic credit strategy. He's been in the industry for over 21 years and joined Morgan Stanley's private credit business right at inception in 2009. Hi, Ashwin. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Katarina. It's great to be with you today. Such a great pleasure to have you on, and I'm excited to get into your 2024 outlook for opportunistic credit. But first, I want to get into what that even means, because it has sort of become an umbrella term within private credit. So how do you define it, and which strategies do you specifically focus on? Yeah, that's a great question, Katarina. It, it means different things to different strategies, and, and honestly, uh, the definition and how people characterize it has changed over the course of time. Uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago, it, it probably referred to more liquid public credit strategies. Uh, but today, in, in a private context, is the way how we think about it. Uh, we define it in, in really three ways. One, by way of approach, i.e. we are providing a solution and not a product. Uh, so as you know, in private credit, a lot of participants are senior lenders, mes lenders, junior lenders, what have you. Uh, we think about approach from an opportunistic credit perspective as one leg of the stool. And with that approach, we, we come at it from a solutions approach. We're here to provide you a capital solution, which might include senior debt, junior debt, preferred equity. Uh, the second way we think about it is by landscape. And what do I mean by that? Where do we play in? Uh, our our definition is we play in the private markets and we tend to play in that real estate that exists where, where performing credit ends on one side and distressed credit ends on the other. So we're not doing much distressed, but we're existing in that wide landscape that exists between the two, uh, which is very fertile ground in this market backdrop. And finally, uh, we define it by way of use case. Most of direct lending private credit activity today is dedicated towards private equity LBO activity. We are not uh, defined by use case. We are open architecture with respect to use case. So call it LBOs, refinancings, recapitalizations, new money into restructurings, growth capital. We're relatively agnostic. Uh, we're just trying to find situations where we can provide a solution. So that's how we define it. And so how does your strategy differ from others in the opportunistic space, how they see different strategies and what strategies you have? 
Great question. Now, we we are only facing uh, companies that is corporate counterparties. A number of other opportunistic credit strategies may be facing non-corporate counterparties, and those might include music royalties uh, and and non-corporate backed issuers. On the one hand, uh, other opportunistic players may also be doing more asset-based type lending against hard asset collateral. And then finally, uh, distressed debt is often used with an opportunistic moniker. We don't do much classical distressed debt as work. That's great framing. Um, so I want to ask you, can you take me through how you look at these very bespoke deals and how do you price them specifically in the current environment? Yeah, look, I don't think we're doing anything particularly revolutionary here uh, because we're credit investors. Most of our uh, investments have three or four elements to them. Uh, those elements are very typical. They, they'll have an upfront fee element. They'll have a yield or coupon element. Uh, they'll have a call protection element. And then the fourth is a possible uh, element, which is upside uh, via equity participation. But really the, the, the nuance comes in the fact that each of these investments that we construct could have a differing mix of these four elements in them, uh, which is what makes it different from what I would call the assembly line leverage finance market, uh, which we are a part of. And then the second thing that I would point out is in this environment where spreads on a historical basis are, are relatively attractive and high. We're very focused on locking in duration or locking in non-call features into our structures such that we can capture those spreads for our clients for a longer period of time and allow their capital to compound at these higher spreads, generating a higher multiple of invested capital. So there's no single special sauce. It's the same four categories. It's just a mix and match of them depending upon the securities. The second aspect is we're fundamental-oriented intrinsic value investors, so very much focused on company financial analysis, no different from how a private equity firm would, would underwrite these companies. Right. What does the pipeline of deals look like for you in 2024 as we continue in this high interest rate environment? Yeah, we, uh, you know, Q1 tends to be the seasonal, seasonally slow period for us, but we've actually entered the year with a very robust pipeline. Some of that is um, spillover from, from Q4 of last year. And the way I think about it is, um, you know, ratio of uh, number of deals in the pipeline, that's the, the, the raw data, to the number of active deals. Uh, today, that ratio stands at about one to five, uh, meaning we have a ton of things in the pipeline with all kinds of use cases and all kinds of industries. Uh, and it feels like it's going to be a very active year uh, upcoming, just based on what we've been hearing from the marketplace broadly. Great. And so one thing that we're looking at is potential cuts in the interest rates in 2024. So depending on how things play out, how do you see that impacting the flow of deals and opportunities in the space? Yeah, I think there's a uh, there's a headwind tailwind factor there, right? I think markets by and large are pricing in cuts to begin, and and the macro data would suggest that that should happen as well. We're not macro guys; uh, we keep an awareness of what the macro environment tells us, and it helps inform our behavior. But I do think 
uh, a, a regime in which interest rates starts to normalize, I don't think we're going to see a dramatic cut back to sort of pre-2002 levels. But if you see a moderating interest rates, that will be a big boost to deal flow because people will have a better idea of what their cost of capital is. Uh, and also the cost of capital is coming down for the vast majority of the market. So that should be good for deal activity across almost all leveraged finance and alternative markets. Even in opportunistic? Even in opportunistic, because people will have a greater desire to transact. Uh, and, and, and remember, you know, one of the big things that we're focused on and what we're seeing in our pipeline is people dealing with higher interest rates. The full effect of that interest rate increases haven't yet flown through. Uh, so if there's some sense of normalization, that's an added incentive to transact uh, and, and get your capital structure dealt with and focus on growth and exits and other types of activity. I'm curious how default and recovery rates are informing your outlook for opportunistic deals in this upcoming year. Yeah, I think we're going to see an uptick in default rates. I, I don't think it's, it's going to be... Um, uh, I think it's going to be a normal default cycle only because in 2020 and 2021, you know, right when rates were, uh, you know, at zero, close to zero, we've had significant issuances both in public and private credit market. Uh, and, and the cost of capital and the debt capacity of a lot of those issuers is not the same as it was. Uh, inevitably, that will lead to some defaults, uh, which I think in general is a good thing. It's a way for the system to cleanse itself and so for some of these companies to arrive at their right capital structures. I think it, it presents an opportunity for us, to be honest, uh, because we can provide, we, we are looking for those situations where our capital can provide a solution for a good company which may have too much debt uh, and where the private equity firm or the ownership of the business still wants to back the company, but they need a form of hybrid capital that can allow them to get to the next level. And then also quickly jumping into fundraising, how are you seeing allocations into opportunistic strategies within private credit versus other strategies like drug lending, sponsored finance in the upcoming year? Yeah, one of the interesting things that I've observed in looking at the historical data is that private credit, as you know, has been on an explosive growth trajectory over the last 10 years or so. The industry has grown uh, by a significant factor, you know, some, some estimates 300 billion to 1.3 trillion during that, during that time frame. And the vast majority of the share capture within that growth has been in senior secure direct lending. Uh, so if you look back in 2008, for instance, Senior secure direct lending accounted for about 20% of allocations in the US, whereas in 2021, it was closer to 55 or 60%. So that's a, which was great because it's a, it's a relatively new asset class. Rates were zero, uh, very attractive place to be, gave you excellent cash yield, top of the balance sheet risk. Uh, but I think because of what's occurred to the base rate environment, um, some other strategies, special sets, credit opportunities, mezzanine, have been on a relative basis underallocated in some measure because they weren't as attractive. So I think you'll see a rebalancing of that matrix. Uh, senior secured is very popular and will continue to garner a lot of attention. But I think you'll see some other strategies start to play catch up because uh, the risk-adjusted returns that we can get from, from investing some of those are very attractive. And we're hearing that from asset allocators on a global basis as well. Great. 
Um, and then finally, you know, we're in a particularly interesting market for opportunistic credit. So how do you see the role of opportunistic private credit strategies through different market cycles? Yeah. So um, today we're, we're very focused on providing interest rate relief. That's the most thematic aspect of our pipeline, uh, you know, providing interest rate relief by uh, either sub-debt or a combination of senior debt and sub-debt and preferred stock where uh borrowers and sponsors are willing to pay a higher aggregate cost of capital, but with a lower cash interest burden. Uh, and that's by virtue of you know receiving some pick interest, et cetera. And there are various other return elements that enhance the total return package. So today, that's a big theme. Uh, I think 12 months now, it's going to be something different. Very hard for me to say what it was. But I also think another big theme that will emerge will be to provide a hybrid capital solution for growth companies um, that have seen a major valuation reset uh, and need some sort of capital to continue or to restart the growth engine. And that could be a combination of debt securities or structured equity securities that don't require a huge argument about what the valuation is, which is what an equity round would do. Uh, I think that will be uh, a theme that starts to, starts to emerge as well. And then finally, if we do have a meaningful default cycle there will be opportunities for rescue financing uh, and things of that nature, especially in the in the private middle market where uh, you know some of these deals are uh, you know quite attractive and you can find them and source them on a proprietary basis, which uh, a lot of these platforms, including ourselves, are well set up to do. That's great. Thank you so much, Ashwin. Thank you for the great insights. Fantastic. Thank you, Katarina. Thank you for having me. Court coverage this week, we take a look at Charismatic Brands, Golinos, Diamond Sports Group, FDX Group, Wesco Aircraft Small Direct Club, and Amaris. Charismatic Brands, a distributor of medical apparel, footwear, and accessories filed for Chapter 11 last Monday in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the District of New Jersey. Under the debtor's restructuring support agreement, first lien lenders would receive 100% of pre-dilution reorganized equity, subject to a Section 363 sale process to secure a third-party cash buyer for the company's equity or assets. The RSA is supported by equity sponsor Partners Group and an ad hoc group holding 73% of the first lien loans and 21% of the second lien loans, and a cross-holder group holding 3% of the first lien loans and 50% of the second lien loans. The debtors propose a $125 million new money super senior secured dip facility. Certain members of the first lien and crossholder groups would provide 15% of the dip and backstop a syndication of the remaining 85% to all holders of first lien claims. At an uncontested first day hearing, Judge Vincent Papalia approved the dip financing on an interim basis, giving the debtors access to $50 million of the facility. Goal, the leading low-cost airline in South America and one of Brazil's largest domestic airlines, filed for Chapter 11 in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York on Thursday. Debtors say they'll use a Chapter 11 process to delever their balance sheet and reach resolutions with aircraft lessers for their fleet of 141 planes. Additionally, Goal has obtained a commitment of $950 million in new money dip financing from members of the ad hoc group of ABRA bondholders and certain other ABRA bondholders. The first day hearing is scheduled for Monday, January 29th. On Wednesday, the Diamond Sports Group debtors sought court approval to enter into a commitment letter to obtain a junior subordinated debt facility consisting of term loans and an aggregate principal amount of $450 million, in line with the new restructuring transaction announced on January 17th. The facility would provide the debtors with an incremental $100 million of necessary liquidity with the remaining $350 million used to refinance a portion of the debtors' first lien loans. 
The official committee of unsecured creditors, however, has argued that the election procedures tied to syndication of the DIP facility are prejudicial to junior-funded debt creditors. The UCC has asked the court to schedule an emergency hearing in the DIP election procedures and require the debtors to obtain court approval before commencing syndication of the DIP. The FTX Group debtors said they will not seek U.S. Supreme Court review of a Friday, January 19th decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals to the Third Circuit directing the appointment of an examiner in the Chapter 11 cases. In a letter to the bankruptcy court, the debtors also noted that they expect to provide projected recovery ranges for classes in their Chapter 11 plan at an omnibus hearing next Wednesday. Judge Christopher Lopez converted the Smile Direct Club Chapter 11 cases to Chapter 7 at a hearing on Wednesday denying the debtors' motion to approve a credit bid sale to their dip lenders and a structured dismissal of the cases. The judge sustained objections of the sale from Smile Direct Club's former competitor, Align Technologies, Prepetition Administrative Agent, HPS Investment Partners, the Ad Hoc Committee of Convertible Note Holders, and the Office of the U.S. Trustee. All in all, quote, the package before the court goes too far for me to find that it's in the best interest of creditors, the judge said. Judge Thomas M. Horan took the confirmation of Amaris's proposed plan under advisement after hearing oral arguments last Wednesday. The judge said that he will likely issue a ruling from the bench after taking at least a few days to let this one simmer. Arguments focused on the U.S. trustees and the Security Exchange Commission's objections to non-consensual, non-debtor release of the plan, what Judge Horan called one of the more vexing issues that the bankruptcy courts have to decide. Dish Network, Echo Star, Spirit Airlines, JetBlue, Luma Technologies, Viva Partners, iHeartMedia, Accent Care, Premier Dental Services, and iCare Partners ran out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings. This week, Rear published an analysis of Dish Network's DBS Exchange, highlighting concerns over bankruptcy-related protections connected to the cost-sharing structure of the transaction. Rear believes that the company will likely need to improve the form of its exchange consideration and or pursue additional coercive measures to achieve significant participation in the DBS Exchange. According to sources, more than 75% of DBS secured notes and more than 75% of DBS unsecured notes have signed on to a cooperation agreement opposing the transaction. To access Rear's full analysis of Dish and Echo Star, please reach out to a Rear representative. After Spirit's recently completed sale leaseback transaction in December 2023 and January 2024, Rear estimates that Spirit likely consumed much of the company's equity value in its fleet, implying that the scope for future deals may be constrained. Depending on the specific aircraft sold in the recent transaction estimated market prices, Rearg estimates that Spirit likely has $250 million to $400 million of equity remaining in its fleet. JetBlue informed Spirit that it believes the merger is terminable on or after Sunday, January 28th, and according to sources, Spirit is in talks with Davis Polk as legal advisor as it evaluates balance sheet options. Lumen Technologies last week proposed a new transaction support agreement, which includes raising $1.325 billion of new money. Highlights of the proposed transaction include that all terminal lenders can explicitly now participate in the proposed exchanges. Lumen will issue $1 billion of super priority debt in the form of a revolver with a $500 million in a first out tranche and $500 million in a second out tranche. All other Lumen super priority debt, including a new term loan A, will be parried to the second out tranche. To access Rear's full analysis of the proposed transaction, please reach out to a Rear representative. Rearg published an analysis of Inviva's $1.8 billion of debt, suggesting that all of the company's debt is guaranteed by all of Inviva's producing plants, with the exception of the Hamlet plant, which is owned by a joint venture. In addition, entities associated with five of the six ports where Inviva has operations appear to also provide guarantees. To access Rearg's full analysis of Inviva, please reach out to a Rearg representative. 
Given iHeartMedia's $3 billion May 2026 maturity wall and current yields on its debt, there's been speculation in the market that the company may pursue a liability management transaction such as a drop-down. Work estimates that iHeart would need $1.65 billion of LTM-adjusted EBITDA as of December 31, 2024 to be able to transfer the $2.8 billion of assets needed for a drop-down entity to raise $2.265 billion of debt to adjust the company's 2026 term loan. Even if iHeart were able to do this, it would still leave over $800 million of secured notes that are coterminous with the term loan unresolved. Home healthcare provider Accent Care launched an exchange offer last week to up-tier its first and second lien loans due 2026 at par to new super priority second out and third out loans due 2028 behind 175 million SOFR plus 550 BIPs new money first out tranche. Premier Dental Services doing business at Sunrava Health is working with Greenhill & Company as financial advisor to boost liquidity and replace a receivables facility. Icare services provider Icare Partners is in discussion with investors on a potential drop-down transaction to raise new money, according to sources. Top road stories this week included central bankers warn investors against expecting immediate rate cuts. Indian issuers sense appetite for high yield after muted 2023. Van Dielen disputes former Judge Jones's judicial immunity defense to lawsuit, asserting Jones engaged in non-judicial act says amended complaint moots other defenses. Regulatory coverage. SEC cracks down on SPACs as practice fades following dozens of SPAC-related bankruptcies. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with The Week Ahead. Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas, and here are a few highlights from the upcoming week. A longer schedule of the week's events, including earnings reports, can be found on the Rear website under America's Week Ahead. The week starts on Monday with oral arguments before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in the appeal of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's rulings in the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or PREPA, lien challenge litigation. Broadly, the PROMESA Oversight Board is challenging the recourse and scope of liens securing bonds issued by PREPA. Last March, Judge Swain ruled that the PREPA bondholders have perfected liens only in the bond sinking and subordinate funds and certain related accounts, and no security interest in the trust agreements, covenants, and remedies. Judge Swain also found that the bondholders have an unsecured deficiency claim in the form of an unsecured net revenue claim based on the value of future net revenues that would have become collateral upon being deposited in the sinking funds. The appellants, who include the bond trustee, Golden Tree, Sincora, and others, maintain that the bondholders' claims are secured by all of PREPA's revenue, not just the revenue deposited into the sinking and subordinate funds. Then on Tuesday, the Wesco and Cora trial on the 2022 up-tier exchange transaction continues. The trial began last week with opening statements and the start of witness testimony. The 2024-2026 formerly secured note holders and 2027 unsecured note holder Langer Mays say that the transaction breached their respective indentures and violated their sacred rights. The debtors maintained that the 2022 transaction complied with the indentures, which permitted the company to both issue new notes and release liens. Also at issue in the trial is Langer Mays' standing. Last week, Judge Marvin Isker ruled that the 2024-2026 note holders do have standing, but there are tribal issues of fact as to whether Langer Mays can challenge the transaction. Jumping to Friday, the Honix debtor is seeking confirmation of its plan after reaching a global settlement with the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, the court-appointed future claims representative, and Parent Hess, among others. The debtors filed an amended plan in December that incorporates the deal. 
The plan provides for the establishment of an asbestos trust, with Hess providing a series of cash payments to fund trust distributions and the debtor providing 100% of its reorganized common equity. In exchange, Honix and Hess would be protected by a permanent channeling injunction that would channel all asbestos claims to the trust, resolving all of the debtor's present and future asbestos claims and avoiding costly litigation. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Take care and see you next week.